Now those of you who might be mechanics or carpenters or craftsmen, cabinet makers, you understand the importance and the necessity of having the right tool for the job, right? Whether they're hand tools or power tools, each tool is designed to perform a particular function, a screwdriver to twist screws, uh, a hammer to drive in nails, and something to saw with, you know. And each one is something that other tools, most other tools, won't do. Now, when my grandfather passed away in the early 70s, my dad gave me some of my grandfather's tools. They were pretty simple. There was a hand planer. There was a level. There was a screwdriver. There was a chalk liner, which some of you might not even know <laughs> what that is. But they were special to me because they had belonged to my grandfather, who was a carpenter. In his later years, he built miniature wood churches and, uh, with these tools. He also built a lot of wood knickknacks, picture frames, and even some wooden toys that were really cool. When he was younger, my grandfather worked as a carpenter on Black Canyon Dam, right up the river here. Uh, he worked and helped build the, the arch bridge on the way to Cascade. And uh, so we always say, that's Grandpa's bridge, that's Grandpa's, you work at my Grandpa's dam, I appreciate that. <laughs> and he also worked on the Panama Canal when he was a, a young, young man. And recently, I've discovered that we are descendants. We used to be known as the Slaybox. Now we are the Slaybaws. But we are descended. The Slaybox were Amish immigrants who came from Switzerland and Germany, who settled in Ohio and Holmes County. And they're still famous today for their carpentry and their craftsmanship. Now, as an upholster, who is also a builder, my dad built uh, onto our house a couple of times. He built a shop. He he helped with his father-in-law to build a cabin at Cascade. But my dad had a different approach to tools. If there wasn't the right tool for the job, and Chan's laughing, if there wasn't the right tool for the job, dad made the tool. And when we moved back to Emmett, we moved into mom and dad's house after mom had moved into the mother-in-law apartment with my sister and brother-in-law. And my dad had passed away a couple of years before. But a lot of his tools were still out in the shop where I have my architect's office still. And some of the family had already picked out the tools that, that they wanted, but most of Dad's tools were still there. So I decided to continue the family tradition. I told my son, Matt, that he could have whatever he wanted, anything that he wanted except Dad's sewing machine. Mom wanted to make sure that went to somebody, and Matt wouldn't take the sewing machine anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but there was a box of tools that nobody else had wanted because the tools were well used, Many of them have been ground down. Some of them had pieces welded to them, and the handles have been bent. Kind of funny. And since there were a lot of pocket knives in the same box, it drew my son's attention because Matt collects knives and he, he collects swords. And so nothing was better to him than having Grandpa's knives, and he picked out a few of those. But, but Matt also wanted these strange-looking tools. My, my dad had made each tool to do a certain job, and if there wasn't a tool available, dad made it special. And as Matt was digging through the box, he'd pull out one of these strange-looking tools and had no idea what it was used for, and, and neither did I. But Matt would turn it around in his hands and look at it like it was some kind of precious jewel, and, and he would say, can I have this too? <laughs> and so he took that one too. He thought they were, 
the greatest things in the world because they had been invented by his, his grandfather. And we saw last week, our God is in the extreme makeover business. As believers, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And God's desire is to do an extreme makeover in the life of every single person on this earth, as amazing as it is to see the transformation of a run-down, dilapidated house, God wants to do a relational, emotional, spiritual, internal, forever transformation in the life of every man, every woman, and every child. And so God wants to do an extreme makeover in your life. And according to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he wants to do that to change the way that we think, to transform you by the renewing of your mind. And he wants to change the way you act so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He wants to change you so that you will live the beautiful Christian life. Beautiful Christian life is a life that displays and reflects the beauty of Jesus Christ, as we're saying that the beauty of Jesus may be seen in you. God wants to transform you into the image of Christ. So each one of us in the hands of God is a masterpiece in the making. We are being crafted by the master. We're being sculpted into a masterpiece that God wants each one of us to be. And this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to see how God does that. How God does it. How God sculpts us into the image of Christ. But we also see that each one of us is uniquely and perfectly suited for what God has distinctly purposed each one of us to be and to do. Specifically, we will see the tools, the instruments that God uses. We see the tools in the skilled hands of the master. These are the tools that God has cut, <laughs> he has shaped, he has ground down with the grinder, he has something welded onto them, and each has a certain bent, but he has perfectly shaped and smoothed it for the job that God has purposed us to do. You see, the masterpieces, the masterpieces of God's workmanship and the tools that he uses are one in the same. They're one in the same. We are God's instruments. We are God's tools. But we're also the masterpieces that God is, is creating. Each one of us is a masterpiece in the making. But we're also a tool that is useful, purposeful, and essential in the hands of the master. In other words... Other spiritually gifted Christians, other Christians who have spiritual gifts, are some of the tools that God uses to do an extreme makeover in me and do an extreme makeover in you. And you as a gifted Christian, as a tool in the hands of the master, are some of the tools that God uses to build his church, to build into the life of others. You see, God doesn't make us into the image of Christ just to make us into a beautiful work of art to be displayed in a museum, to be put on a shelf, or to be put in a vault in a museum someplace. But he shapes us into what he wants us to be for the work of service, as a tool to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, of course, other Christians are not the only tools that God uses to make us more like Jesus. He uses our circumstances, right? He uses our suffering 
to conform us to Christ. He uses prayer. He uses worship. He uses the study of his word. He uses uh, our devotion to him as we meditate on his word and, and pray. All of these shape us and form us into the image of Christ, but it also takes the work of other Christians who build into our lives. As iron sharpens, sharpens iron. For example, when someone with the spiritual gift of mercy comes to you during a horrible time in your life and ministers to you in a very specific way, that person has been a tool in the hand of the master. And God uses it to do his work for you and in you. And when you hear the teaching of God's word, the teacher is a tool in the hand of the master through which God shapes and sculpts you and you become more like Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul considered this to be the goal of his ministry among the Galatians, that he would be a tool in God's hand to bring about their spiritual transformation. He wrote to them, My children, I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I'm in labor till Christ is formed in you. His ministry at the Galatians is like the, the labor of childbirth. Until Christ's nature is formed in their lives. That's the goal of Paul's entire ministry. Christ's likeness. To build Christ's likeness. To build the life of Christ into those whom he served. And so this brings us to our study in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4. So please turn once again to the 7th verse of the 4th chapter of Ephesians. And Ephesians 4, 7 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we'll come back to that verse in a little while. But I want us to go on to verse 8 here. In verse 8, Paul loosely quotes Psalm 68, uh, verse 18. In fact, we had that for our, our offertory today. You have ascended on high. You have received gifts among men. That's Psalm 68 verse 18. He's going to loosely quote that. But if you compare that verse in Psalm 68 with uh, what we have in verse 8 of Ephesians 4, you're going to see there's some significant differences. You see, Paul is quoting the 68th Psalm as an illustration. He's not doing what he did 48, 50 times in the book of Romans where he quotes it to show that it's prophetically fulfilled or anything like that. It's an illustration here, just an illustration to explain his particular point, that God gives spiritual gifts. God gives supernatural abilities to build a suitable house to display his glory. And so verse 8 of Ephesians 4, as, as Paul puts it here, therefore it says, Psalm 68 verse 8 says, when he, when Christ ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And the main point of this verse is the enthronement and the triumph of the ascension of Christ. That Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, ascended to the right hand of the Father and took his place there. The right hand is the place of authority. It's the place of ability. It's called the right hand because it's literally the hand of the power of God, of the one who sits, sits on the throne. And then Paul writes in verse 9 to explain this further. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
He came and lived on this earth. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. And then he continues, He who descended is himself also who he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now Psalm 68, which is referred to here but not directly quoted, is a victory hymn composed by David. And the victory hymn was to celebrate when David and his armies conquered the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. When they conquered Jerusalem and David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant represented the what? The presence of God. And you remember that David danced and praised God as the Ark of the Covenant, the, the representation of the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant was taken up to Mount Zion. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God enthroned among his people. And it was common that after the king won a great victory, in this case that David conquered the city, the king would bring home the spoils, he'd bring the enemy prisoners into parade before the people, and the Israelite king would, would take his retinue through the streets of the holy city up to Jerusalem and up to Mount Zion. Now the primary difference in the psalm and what Paul writes is that typically... It was the victorious king who received gifts. They would give gifts, the people would give gifts to the king. And in sending to Mount Zion, so that the Lord may dwell there. And in Paul's application in Ephesians, it's the triumphant and exalted king who gives gifts instead of receiving gifts. The triumphant Lord Jesus Christ, from his exalted position at the right hand of the Father, is a giver of gifts. The exalted, victorious victorious Christ is a giver of gifts. And the effect of Christ in his victory, giving gifts, cannot be overstated when it comes to the life of the church. What Paul is showing from the psalm of the triumphant king is that the outpouring of the Spirit of God and the giving of the gifts of the Spirit marks the downfall of all of Christ's enemies. It begins, it's the beginning of the building of the church of Jesus Christ. In effect, in giving gifts, Jesus declares victory against all his enemies. Victory over Satan, Satan is defeated. Victory over the horde of demons, all the demons are defeated. Victory over sin and death, victory over the fear of death and the power of sin. Victory over all the world's systems that are opposed to Christ. It's just as the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Why won't the gates of Hades prevail against the church? Because Christ gave his Holy Spirit and Christ gave gifts to his church. Have you ever thought of that that way before? How do we know that the victorious Jesus Christ will build his church How do we know that it won't fail and not even the gates of Hades will stand against it? Because Christ gave us spiritual gifts. The gifts of the Spirit are given to equip the people of God. The gifts of the Spirit are given to us to enable us to be used as a tool in the hands of the Master, to bring about the fullness of Christ 
in the temple of God, which is his church. We are given spiritual gifts that we might be used as tools, tools to build as Christ builds his church, to be used of God. And the gates of Hades cannot even prevail against that. So I want us to examine verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4 more, more closely. And I want us to see and explore the amazing pattern of operation here. How all this works in the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, if you looked at that, that first part, you know, we're to walk in a manner of the calling of which we have been called with humility and, and gentleness. And then Paul talks about the, the nature of the church. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then he turns in verse 7 from what the church is to the provision made by the Holy Spirit for its dynamic. The Greek word for power in, in the New Testament is dunamis. We get the word dynamite and dynamic from it. When Alfred Nobel invented this thing that would blow up everything in the world, he said, what shall I call it? And, and he chose dunamis, the, pow, the word from the, from the Bible. We get the word dynamite, dynamite. This is the, the, the dynamic, the power for the effective functioning of the body of Christ. So, so look once again in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so in this brief sentence, there's a reference to two tremendous things here. First of all, there's a reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, there's a reference to the remarkable power, the dynamic, the power by which that gift is exercised. So first of all, there's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that to each one of us, grace was given. Paul refers to the gift of the Holy Spirit as, as grace. Now, I think there's two, two things going on. Not only is the Holy Spirit himself called a gift, but he comes bringing gifts from Christ. And so there's the spiritual gifts, there's the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is encompassing all of that here. Paul refers to the gift of the Holy Spirit as grace. To each one of us, grace was given. As I mentioned last week, the word grace in the original language is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. If your name is Carissa or Karen or Carrie, it means grace, grace or gracie. <laughs> As you know, grace means unmerited favor. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to receive it. Grace is an absolutely free gift. If your boss called you into his office and said, I'm going to give you a gift today, and he handed you your paycheck, what would you think? You'd think, I worked for that, I earned it, and it's not enough? <laughs> that, that's not a grace at all. But what if he called you into, your off, into his office and said, I'm just going to give this amount of money to you just because. No strings attached, doesn't have anything to do with the work you do for me. It's just something I want to give to you. That's, that's grace. Grace. Charis. A related word to charis, grace, is charisma. Charisma. And a charisma means a gift of grace. A free gift, unearned, unmerited. So turn over to Paul's letter, uh, first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Chapter 12, the fourth verse of 1 Corinthians. I want us to look at a couple of verses here in the 12th chapter of, of Corinthians. And in verse 4, Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of charisma, gifts of grace. We get the word charismatic from it. Now even though the word has been co-opted and misapplied today, in the proper sense of the word, in the biblical sense, every Christian is charismatic. Every Christian is charismatic in the sense that we are a recipient of the charisma, a grace gift. This grace is a God-given capacity for service in God's building project that we have received as Christians. We did not possess it before we came to Jesus Christ. You see, it's not a natural ability. It's not a talent. Now, God does and may use your natural abilities in conjunction with your spiritual gift. I think that happens all the time. But a grace gift, a charisma, is not a natural ability or a talent. When you receive Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit took up residence in you, he brought gifts with him. So go down to verse 7 of this 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He brought gifts with him, a manifestation of the Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. For to each one was given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he goes on to describe some of these spiritual gifts. Now, notice the grace gift is for the common good, for the common good of the body of Christ. It's to be used as you are used as a tool in serving other believers. Your grace gift is not to benefit you personally. Now, of course, there's side benefits because when we do what God has called us to do and, and purposed us to do and equipped us to do, there's going to be a lot of joy and peace and all kinds of stuff. But, but those are side benefits. The primary use of the gift is not for you personally, but it's to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. It's for the work of service. But it's a supernatural ability given by God. It's not a natural ability. Now, when we were born into this world, we came equipped with God-given talents, personality, and abilities, all of which were dependent upon who we were descended from physically. I'm descended from my grandfather, who was a carpenter and a builder, and he was descended from a long line of Schlebachs who are still known to this day. I, I found the Schlebach family in a book on Amish houses and, and farms and, and and uh, barns and uh, you know so he got his physical talents and abilities from them they were passed on to my dad who I think he corrupted a few of them because he would often say in the poultry shop you know a hammer's for putting a screw in the, the screwdrivers for getting it out <laughs> you know and he approached a lot of the things around the house that way but you know he was a craftsman he was a builder he had the natural ability and and I didn't get it in exactly the same way, but as an architect, you know, my natural ability is still involved in the construction industry. So I got those all from the people I was descended from. When you are born again, not physical birth, but by the Spirit, when you received Jesus Christ and trusted Him for your sins, forgiveness of your sins, you were born again and you came equipped with God-given spiritual gifts from your heavenly Father.
which are all dependent upon who you're related to spiritually, related to Jesus Christ. And so a spiritual gift is not a sanctified natural ability. <coughs> the spiritual gifts are sovereignly, sovereignly bestowed manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power. And the Apostle Paul illustrates the difference between a spiritual gift and a natural ability from his own background. Paul, or Saul of Tarsus as he was known then, had the natural ability to express himself publicly. But he never regarded his ability to speak as a gift of the Spirit. He was also had a tremendous intellect. He was a man of great learning at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul must have used his knowledge of philosophy and literature and the Talmud and the Hebrew scriptures to compose eloquent, convincing orations. He could have delivered them with magnificent ability. But instead, he wrote this to the Corinthians. And when I came to you, therefore, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, the Holy Spirit expresses himself through people. He uses human knowledge. He uses human ability, but in a supernatural way, apart from the person's own ability. Now, lots of people have the gift or the natural ability of gab, right? But that doesn't make him a preacher. And I'm not saying this bad thing. <laughs> you know, because I'm amazed at how many people never run out of something to say, but that's a natural ability. And quite frankly, when I'm with people, especially that I don't, those that I don't know very well or in a large group, I often struggle with what to say. I don't have that as a natural ability. And I've often said that if it weren't for the Bible, I'd have nothing to say on Sunday morning. <laughs> and that's really a good thing because it keeps me in his word. And I do expository preaching that is drawn out of the passage that we're talking about. But it also hits on the difference between a natural ability and a spiritual gift. You don't have to have the natural ability of speaking to be gifted of God, to be a preacher. Paul refers to one of his own gifts of graces of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace, this charis was given. It came from God. God is the source. God is the power. It's all of God. What is this grace? What is this spiritual gift? He goes on to say, To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Clearly, one of Paul's spiritual gifts was that of preaching, particularly presenting the gospel to the Gentiles, or as it's called in other places, the gift of prophesying. But it wasn't on account of his intellect or his natural abilities. It was a charis, a grace gift, a divine enablement given by God. When Paul wrote to his young son in the faith, Timothy, he used the word charisma, and he's writing to encourage Timothy because Timothy was facing some pretty tough stuff in the, the great church of Ephesus. There were false prophets. There were false teachers. There were people saying, Timothy, you're not old enough to really know about these things. You know, so they looked down on his youth. And so, so the fire was going out in Timothy's life. And Paul wrote to them, for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the charisma, the gift of God, which is in you. Apparently, Timothy had been neglecting the gift that God had, had given him. Now, I grew up in the church, 
but I was in my mid-20s, maybe even late 20s, before I heard anything about spiritual gifts. 20 years after I'd received Christ, I, I heard about it. Yet it's one of the biblical subjects that I can point to and say today that has made a major, major impact on my life and my relationship to Jesus Christ. I was in my mid-20s listening to Christian radio. In those days, I'd listen to Christian radio. The first time I'd heard Christian radio was in my architect's office down on Main Street, where hospice is at now. And I would hear a sermon, and they would recommend or talk about a book. i got to have that book. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But that started the book buying that continues to this day. But I was listening to Christian radio one day, and I heard a sermon by Pastor Rick Yon. And you've probably never heard of him. He went on to become the, the president of Colorado Christian University. But uh, he talked about this in his messages, and I bought his book, and I happened across the book the, to find it the other day, and I almost brought it because the pages are falling out. You know, it's a paperback book, and it's worn on the edge, you know, because it's been opened and pages turned so many times. So, so I bought his book, and it, it's, it's literally changed my, my Christian life. Yet in the early church, it's apparent that this is where the church began, spiritual gifts with new converts. This is where discipleship begins. Whenever anyone by faith in Jesus Christ passed from darkness into light, he or she was immediately taught that the Holy Spirit of God not only imparted the life of Jesus into them, but he also equipped him or her with a spiritual gift or gifts, which they were responsible to discover and exercise. The Apostle Peter wrote this to the young church of God, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. It's significant that in every place, in the four places in particular, where the gifts of the Spirit are described in Scripture, the emphasis is placed on the fact that every Christian has at least one, as each one has received. The gift of the Holy Spirit that he has given you, it may be lying dormant, but it's there. You may not know what it is, but it's there. Can you lose it? People are always asking that question. If you don't exercise your spiritual gift, will you lose it? It might get rusty and squeaky and the fire go out like Timothy's, but if not used and developed. But Romans chapter 11, verse 29 says, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I think of the Apostle Paul again, who wrote, For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not exercise my spiritual gift. If I take what Christ has graciously given to me from his place of victory and power, if I take that and squander it. You know, and the Holy Spirit makes no exceptions to the basic equipping of each believer. So no Christian can say, well, I can't serve God. I don't have what it takes. I don't have any capacity or ability to serve him. All of us as authentic followers of Jesus Christ have been gifted with the grace of his spirit. And the other tremendous statement in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 is that 
This grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now I want us to go back over to Romans chapter 12 again. Because here we see the new remarkable power. God, Christ not only determines the gift of the Holy Spirit, but he also determines the amount of the gift and the amount of the faith. In Romans chapter 12, verse 6, you'll, you'll remember that faith is measured out by God. God gives to each a measure of faith. And we start in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Paul is here exercising his spiritual gift of apostleship. He calls it the grace given to him. Through the chorus given to me, through the grace given to me, I say this, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In the same way that God determines and gives the gift, he measures out to each a measure of faith. God gives the allotment of the measure of faith. And in this case, he measures out the faith that it takes for you to use your gift. We see this in verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, according to what? We are to use our gifts according to the measure of faith that God gives to us. And verse 7 continues, if prophecy according to what? The proportion of his faith. In service in proportion of his faith. He who teaches in proportion of his faith. And so forth. That the gift is given by God. The faith to use the gift is measured out by God. It's a spiritual gift. A power. A dynamic as determined by Christ. Which comes from his Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit also gives us the faith. In order to do what he has called us and prepared us and shaped us to do. So how does God do extreme makeovers in our lives? How, do, how does God take us and shape us and not only make us more and more like Jesus, but shapes us and sculpts us to be a tool in the hand of the Master, Jesus Christ? In your outline this morning, you'll find a, a summary of Ephesians chapter 4, which is written by Chip Ingram. And this is important. Uh, these are important points that we need to know and understand so that God might fulfill his will and his purposes in our life in the church. When we get this, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. When we get this, Christ will be formed in each one of us. And when we get this, we will experience at Grace Baptist Church the spiritual realities of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. So I want to start with those. I want to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 and through 16 before we look at the summary because this will be our experience. Verse 13 says that, uh, or verse 12 says, We will be equipped for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And then verse 13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up 
in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Write your name out there in the outline if you've got a pencil in your hand. Each individual part. That's me. That's you. What? Causes the growth of the body to the building up of itself in love. And so I want to just sum, read this and sum it up what Chip Ingram puts it in, in a very condensed way that helps us understand that. God gave spiritual gifts. God gave spiritual gifts by the ascended Christ, who is at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority. God gave spiritual gifts to every believer. Why? For the benefit of others. Through the Holy Spirit sovereignly, as the Holy Spirit determines what our benefit to be uh, to others will be. And when did he give these? At the time of salvation, on the basis of grace. Why? To produce the life of Christ in every believer. The ultimate makeover. Father, we thank you for the gifts that you have given to each one of us. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to come and live on the inside of us, to live in us and through us, Father. The, the power that, that that entails, Lord, that it's not our own strength, it's not our own abilities, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I thank you, and we thank you, that you have given gifts to each one of us, supernatural abilities, supernatural abilities and enablements that we might serve one another. And Father, as we continue looking at the spiritual gifts and, and what each one of them means, and look at those the next few weeks, Father, I just pray that you would open us up, each one of us, to that specifically, that what you have for each one of us. As our physical DNA is different from everybody else's in this regard, so is our spiritual DNA. As you have called and purposed and enabled us to do marvelous and wonderful things through the power of your Holy Spirit. And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.